Welcome to the Critical Thinking Initiative Podcast. We bring you research-driven solutions to critical thinking education. Why? Because as Bertrand Russell said, most people would sooner die than think. In fact, they do so. And now your hosts, Steve Perlman and Dave Carrillo. Hi, thanks for joining us again for the Critical Thinking Initiative Podcast. I am Steve Perlman. And I'm Dave Carrillo. And we're here today to sort of unabashedly make a case against the five-paragraph essay, which we just want to see stop everywhere in all of its yeah. forms. Yeah. You know, at the end of the semester, when things are winding down, we, we get a, five minutes to reflect on, you know, the things that, that we've seen and done and, and everything. And five-paragraph essay, just it just keeps coming up as something that we're constantly sort of struggling against. Against in so many ways. And Yes. But first, we want to say to all the educators out there, yeah. K through higher ed, wherever it's present in higher ed, and, and the five-paragraph essay is still taught in higher education, that we recognize the number of constraints and mandates around teaching and that we are not here from an institutional perspective to be able to judge the need that the five-paragraph essay is fulfilling in different institutions or structures and the pressures or the infrastructure that's around certain educators in using that. And second, we'd also like to make it very clear that we recognize that there there are needs for stepping stones in education and that many people invoke the five-paragraph form as a stepping stone into something larger, or at least that with that intention, that this is a, a way to start entering the writing process. And we recognize there are those needs. What we'd also like to point out, however, and what we're going to talk about perhaps in a future podcast, probably in the next podcast, is that it's a false alternative to think that there aren't alternatives to the five-paragraph form as it exists and other ways to go about entering students and offering them stepping stones into this writing process. And that's one of the myths that I think we'd like to dispel most, is that there aren't these alternatives. Because very often we encounter other educators who work with the five-paragraph form, and when we suggest that there are some struggles with the form or consequences to that form, they say, well, what else could we do to move students into argumentative writing, persuasive writing, evidence-based writing, research-based writing that's not in that structure? And there are plenty of other options, but we understand why the five-paragraph form is so steeped in academic culture. And we also recognize that there are sometimes larger assessments that are being done on the educators and the students where this form is mandated. And we, we really want to recognize all of those institutional and cultural pressures or structures up front because we're not in a position to speak them. We are in a luxurious position in that we can teach any form that we want in our classes without any discussion with anybody else about what we're doing. And that's luxurious for us. We want to recognize those who don't have that luxury. Yeah, this is not an indictment on any individual. And, uh, you know, we invite you to share our podcast with as many friends uh, and faculty members as you can. But it is a challenge to talk about pedagogy, pedagogical practices, writing practices, when what you're talking about has such a widespread effect. So... Please keep in mind, we are we are here to impugn the assignment and the form and not in any way, shape or form. The individuals that are that are using this uh, have to use this uh, or are looking for different assignments, but just haven't found them yet. What we really want to point out here, though, are, are two things. 
most centrally. The first is this. It's an old technology. And at one point, it was a really good technology because it was new and it was innovative, perhaps, and it was offering a, a way for everyone to involve writing or use writing that worked across some different classes and so on. But at this point, the five-paragraph essay is roughly the equivalent of the internal combustion engine. I mean, it's... That's an interesting analogy since we're still using it a lot. We're still using it a lot. Yeah. But really, we have the technology now to move into electric vehicles. We don't need the gasoline-powered automobile anymore. It's just that we don't need it to exist. But it's everywhere still. And there are needs, in fact, for us to move away from it. But the point is that, it, look, it's an old technology. We have new technologies. And this particular podcast is going to be the critique of the internal combustion engine. The next podcast will be, here are alternatives to the internal combustion engine. The second point that we feel it's critical to make about this is that the most pernicious, most problematic aspect of the five-paragraph essay is actually the intellectual mindset that it cultivates in students, and it's a mindset that persists into other subjects. It's a mindset that persists into all of their academic studies. It's a mindset that stays with them as they enter higher education, and it is not as intellectually rich a mindset as we really would like to foster in them. Again, two points. It's an old technology and the ramifications of it are seen. The ramifications are, they're everywhere. They're, they're in academic life. They're in, uh, in, they're in, in the social realm. We see the implications in how we deal with political discourse, uh, the, the kind of things that we're fighting against when we when we fight against the five paragraph essay are widespread and then they can be dangerous as well. And so, you know, again, we understand that there are needs. We're not here to critique individuals who are assigning this. But in order to raise the subject, in order to discuss the subject and eventually move move the discussion forward toward better alternatives, we have to start by, you know, at least listing the first couple grievances we have with uh, the five paragraph essay and then going from there. So so before we really move into the mindset issues and yeah, the mindset's the big payoff. Yeah. And we get into more of the conceptual problems. Let's talk first just about it from the very nature of the structure. Now, anyone who might not be familiar with the five paragraph essay, we presume you've probably written one in your past at some point. But it's basically an introduction at the end of which, and often the last line of which must be a thesis statement, three body paragraphs, each of which introduces a point to speak to that or support that thesis statement. Sometimes each of those body paragraphs are required to have a piece of evidence that depends on the extent to which the instructor is working with that in class. And then finally, a conclusion that roughly recapitulates to a certain extent what the rest of the essay did. So it's tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're telling them, and then tell them what you told them. So that's the first problem we have with uh, the five-paragraph essay is, is the, the form itself is, is one that values a very rigid linear structure over literally anything else. In order to write a successful five-paragraph essay, you need that introduction. You need that thesis statement, and then you need the three-body paragraphs that are functioning as support for that thesis statement. And so give me an example of a five-paragraph essay, and we don't want to essentialize this unfairly. 
because it could be on very thoughtful topics. But sure. to, to give a sense of a five paragraph essay, it's red sneakers are great. And red sneakers are great. And now here's my my body paragraphs are red sneakers are great because sneakers are versatile. Red sneakers are great because red is a power color. And red sneakers are great because they're comfortable. So that's an idea of what a five paragraph form could look like. Now, there are some variations. There are on some that variations. Fa- but for, let's ask this initial question. Why three body paragraphs? Why three points? That's a completely arbitrary number. And one of the things that I'm always telling my students, in fact, is – we would say, which of those three points is your best point? Why would you want to move off the most compelling point to talk about other points? But if you're going to talk about other points, why not talk about four other points or nine other points or 17 other points? So there's this arbitrary structural decision that has been made. And in fact, another way to think about it too is now students believe that the only way to introduce a thesis is to introduce it prior to the things that follow that thesis. It has to be at the end of the paragraph. Often it has to be one single sentence, which is better we know than the problem that it was meant to solve, which was that students weren't putting in any point of view or any thesis. And we get that. But there have actually been cases where they took award-winning essays and had educators grade these award-winning essays and they failed them because the thesis statement didn't appear at the end of the first paragraph. And as Alec Duxbury wrote in The Tyranny of the Thesis Statement, quote, the five-paragraph essay is not an inherently incorrect form. However, it is destructive in that students are not ever allowed to discover if the form fits the meaning they seek to make. Teachers insist on the form because it's easier for teachers. This is unwise. And that's something else. It's another point that Brian Hillitz makes really well. And he writes about how it's easily graded, right? And that faculty will, in fact, spend time looking at whether or not the structure is properly followed than the content. So form starts to take precedence over function in that respect. And furthermore, students are not allowed to find a thought that's interesting to them and then find the form that best communicates that thought. Instead, they have to conform their thinking to the structure. And I can immediately hear a number of educators perhaps saying, well, if every student had to find their own form and wrote in their own form for their thought, doesn't that make it much more complicated to do an assessment of that? And on what basis are we making those assessments? That's a reasonable, that's a fair question because it does complicate that to a certain extent. And we'll talk about that more in the next podcast when we talk about what the alternatives are. But for now, it's important to recognize that that is, in fact, something that starts to happen. Students start to bend their thinking into that structure instead of finding the structure to represent their thought in the most meaningful, authentic, intellectually rich fashion. And one of the things that I wrote down while you were talking is that, you know, this idea of of meaning is also a, that's a complex concept in and of itself. It's something that we should probably talk about in another podcast or add to this. And maybe we can have a series of five paragraph podcasts on, on various elements that sort of spin out of this, but the form becomes the meaning. And uh, what you find in terms of uh, this idea of assessment and what's easier to grade and what isn't is that a much more thoughtful discussion of a single reason, piece of evidence or source becomes less meaningful, effective, correct, right, sought after or valued than one that has three because the form itself is three pieces of evidence, three reasons why. So it goes back to this arbitrary nature of the number three. I mean, if you have two great reasons, why do you want to add a bad reason or a weaker reason? But more importantly, you've got 
a specific rigid form becoming the quality or value of the argument over what's actually said in the argument. And so the form of, of, of the five paragraph essay is, is problematic in, in how it's, it's sort of reinforced, how it's, it's valued and, um, you know, what it suggests to students about their two pieces of evidence that are really compelling, their one interest in the single source that they really want to talk about, among other things. And, you know, we, we want to eventually get into to, to some of the implications here. But this also, uh, you know, the form itself and how it sort of subsumes meaning in, in certain ways uh, can become detrimental to students when they're starting to think about, well, I've actually got three pieces of evidence that don't suggest that this thesis is correct. And so by virtue of what the assignment is asking, they're going to ignore those pieces of evidence and that arbitrary number uh, becomes the most valuable piece. Furthermore, it's, it's a, you know, the form itself suggests that writing is exceptionally linear, which it is not generally. I don't know if it's always taught like this, but the end result of a five paragraph essay is that there is absolutely no evolution of the thesis from A to Z. One of the very, very minor outcomes of this in terms of the student's mindset is that they end, to think, they end up thinking that writing is linear uh, and that whatever their thesis is must be adhered to regardless of the evidence that suggests that the thesis needs to change. And that what that form essentially dictates is a complete lack of willingness to look at the evidence any more closely then uh, a student might have to to produce support for the thesis. So let me give an example of what Dave's talking about here because it's such an important point. I state my thesis that red shoes are great and I offer my three reasons. And what, what happens is that students become in the mindset that it's okay to reference and run. And what I mean by that is I'm going to offer my reason that red is a power color, which by the way has nothing to do with the other two reasons that I'm offering of about comfort and, you know, great sure. for athletics. They're, these are entirely inconsequential and unrelated to one another and not interwoven at all. They are just completely distinct notions that are just put together in a paper out of, out of what could be 12 other reasons why red sneakers are great. Just going to choose these three out of 12 with no rationale as to why I'm choosing these three out of the possible 12. These are the three that strike me as nice for this paper. So... That's in itself another and structural often it's problem. The first three, too. Yeah, the first three that come up in a hit on a search or what have you. But now, in the mindset that the function that information serves, the function that research serves for me, is to be able to lend some support because somebody else wrote it down and it got published somewhere, to be able to lend some support to a statement that I'm a claim that I'm going to make. And then I can move off of that. As long as I've dropped some reference for that claim, I can move into my next claim. And every claim, therefore, is as good as the next claim. Body paragraph one claim and parody paragraph two claim, battery paragraph three claim. They're all great. They can all stand independently on their own, even though they have nothing to do with one another. Where we see this play out is if we look at, let's say, the last presidential election, and we see, regardless of, of whether we look at Democratic or Republicans, uh, Democrats or Republicans, I'm not making a distinction in this respect. But we see my candidate is great. I've offered a reason as to why my candidate is great. And now I can move on because I've offered some, there's some piece of evidence that I offered. 
there's just as much evidence potentially for the other person's candidate also being great. And they can just yell that their candidate is great. I can yell at my candidate is great. I have my three reasons. You have your three reasons. There is no interrogation of that rationale. Now, it might seem like what we're suggesting here is that these are very high intellectual tasks that have to be reserved for college-level students or advanced high school-level students. And what we want to clarify is that that is no way the case. There are plenty of ways at more introductory levels, of course, age-appropriate levels, to bring other students into these other elements of complexity. And we will not leave you hanging on that on that line either. Uh, because we will come back and, and talk at length about what the other options are. So, yeah, so that's, I mean, one of the implications right off the bat is that as soon as you come up with a reason, that that becomes as good a reason as any other, or that if you can stack up three reasons that, you you know, that you, you've done your you've done your due diligence and, and, and therefore you have this argument. We can talk about at another time how widespread and, and how often students are asked to write five paragraph essays. But what you have in terms of developing a mindset is is that one-sided biased writing is is or is fine. Right. Right. There's no room in the form for evidence that might complicate the original thesis. Right. right? And again, this is this is where maybe we'll see some variations. The first two paragraphs are for, and the last paragraph is against. But again, if we're adhering to the form then the student is still on the hook for arguing what the thesis is, right? right? The thesis in the traditional five paragraph essay is right in the beginning and it's right at the end, right? right? And so even if you even if you try to add some variation to the form by including a paragraph that quote addresses the opposition, there's no room in that form to change your mind. There's no room in the form to shift the thesis to show how the thesis might not entirely be, you know, correct. And so, again, what that's producing in, in terms of the mindset of the students is is a sort of position when they're writing of having to pick a side and argue that side regardless of the evidence. And that's the other thing that we, we start to see. You say reference and run, and that's as good a, a place to start as any. Uh, the five-paragraph essay doesn't in any way, shape, or form encourage students to look closely at the evidence that they find. And, you know, even a compelling piece of evidence for might have certain limitations, might make certain assumptions, you know, might raise certain implications that affects the student's ability to support the thesis 100%. Again, if they're doing that, the form is going to force them to push that aside. If they're doing that, the form is going to demand that they ignore it and and stay with that one sort of linear argument. So right off the bat, we've got this idea that, you know, this mindset that we see after 12 years of the five paragraph essay is that this piece of writing is going to be a one-sided argument and no evidence can be looked at more closely than uh, the level of supporting whatever thesis Intr just is introduced. Presenting it. Exactly. Presenting right. it. And so what happens is students fall into this dead-leveled conception of intellectualism and cognition, which is that every piece of evidence exists at the same level. No piece of evidence is subordinate mm -hmm. or superior to another piece of evidence. And evidence does not have to speak to other evidence. So paragraph two, it doesn't have to speak to paragraph one in any way, shape, or form. Right. It's entirely disjointed. Now, so even if in paragraph three, I introduce a counterpoint, 
it might not actually speak to either of the points made. So I might say sneakers are great. Mm-hmm. Red sneakers are great. It's a power color. And it is also very comfortable. Red sneakers are bad. Now I'm in my third body body paragraph because I am not allowed to wear sneakers in school. So now I have to wear shoes in school. When I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me wear sneakers in school for the longest time, actually. Yeah. And they weren't the most conservative people, but it was just more the time. And it wasn't until I got like older that – if I finally said, look, you know, I can't be the only kid in school wearing shoes every day. Seriously. Sneakers. Yeah. Anyway. Out like a th- sore thumb there. Right. No, it was not pleasant. Because uh, high school is a warm, fuzzy place, typically. Absolutely. Everybody's accepting of everybody else. So anyway, look, my here I am saying, well, they're not accepted in school. And that doesn't really have anything to do with sure. the other two points. It's not a discussion of the extent to which it's reasonable that they're not accepted in school or should be accepted in school, or it's not in a discussion of the extent to which they're an effective representation of wearing a power color or, or anything, or red really is a power color. There's no progression of this idea. There's no deepening of an idea. There's just the introduction of more and more information toward this idea that is entirely often and most typically Unrelated to anything else. Yeah, and that's not even to say, you know, we don't even have to bring up the even more complicated uh, issue, like when evidence for complicates evidence for, right? Right. Um, And, you know, so let's just remove the sneakers for a second and just say, you know, oftentimes the kind of writing that we see at our institution, but elsewhere is, you know, pick a side and argue it. And so the death penalty, you know, is bad, is a very popular sort of side to argue. And so, you know, you'll have a reason for the death penalty being bad, having to do with how much it costs to keep prisoners on death row. And, you know, it does cost a lot of money to keep prisoners on death row. And should that money be going somewhere else? Uh, And then the next reason you'll see has something to do with morals or ethics. Right. And those two reasons for why the death penalty are bad are entirely different discussions. And there could be threads between them and there could be ways that that they could be uh, discussed in some some way in the same paper. But they definitely affect each other. Those there are relationships between, you know, or could be economics. Well, absolutely, there could be. be. But they're not in these papers. Well, but they're not. But it's just this reason, that reason, and the other reason. The third reason is then and then the Bible or and then... And then the Constitution. Sure. It's not constitutionally. Right. Uh, but none of the, you know, the Constitution and the Bible are not going to talk to each other in any way in this endeavor. And the Bible and economics are not going to talk to each other in any way in this endeavor. I'm just going to drop those points. Yeah. And so we've got this very, still to this day, this very popular form of teaching students if it's not teaching students to write, it's like, here's, I'm assigning you this way to write. You mm-hmm. are now going to say these things mm-hmm. in this order. Taught to them over and over and over again. And and the product of that is a questionable relationship to evidence mm-hmm. and how students are sort of brought up to look at, think about, deal with sources as evidence. Right. A questionable uh, relationship to the idea of argument. Right. A questionable uh, relationship to the idea of thinking in and of itself. As right? linear, right. as I'm, one-sided. I'm, as, here's my thesis. As surface level. And then there's this other thing, too, in terms of, and I guess this goes back to research, but there's this sort of tension between idea and support. 
right? And what comes first? Now, when, you know, we're writing the five-paragraph essay, the thesis comes first, and then you go out and find support for that. And oh, should sure. I jump in on this? Because mm-hmm. maybe the question that irks me most from students, because it's an impossible question to answer and they don't realize it, is when they come to me and they say, is this a good thesis statement? Now, on one level, to be fair, of course, if they're asking, is what I've written here clear to you, I can speak to them about that to a certain extent. But the real answer to the question is, I don't know how good a thesis statement is until I've read the paper that develops the argument or the position that's in the thesis statement. But they have a mindset instead that a good thesis statement is something that that just articulates a point of view, and therefore it's a good thesis. Sure. The quality of a thesis is not measured by whether or not it articulates a point of view. It's by the substance that builds that thesis into something credible and thoughtful. No, I know. And you're right. And then there are some elements, like a stronger thesis is going to have some sort of tension, right? Sure. Like there's going Absolutely. To be, there needs to be something there to be sure. evaluated, weighed. Something needs to be resolved or argued. There are there elements that you could say, there are some, you know, this thesis is stronger than this other thesis. This thesis is weak because of X, Y, and Z. But you're absolutely right. That is one of the biggest challenges in terms of this idea that like there's a mindset that we have to break. It's not the five paragraph essay anymore, but it's the mindset that they need to think something before they go after, exactly. you know, and read about something, right? Or that they have to have this idea and then find support for rather than I have this interest, I have this question, I'm going to go read and figure out sort of, you know, where my position might stand based on how I've evaluated, evaluated evidence and so on and so forth. And let me let me jump on that because I think it's such a great point that you're making. So I'm sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. They're not but interrupting look, at all. This is a critical point. What it's, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's telling students, you come up with your idea and then you're going to go out and you're going to find things to support that idea. That's exactly opposite of what we want people to do with good cognition is what we want the intellectual world to be. The intellectual world is understand the world and from your understanding of the world, find something that's worth communicating out, a question that you might want to resolve or what have you, but it's find something from what exists in need of discussion or need of your commentary, not figure out something you want to say and then go out and pursue ways to be able to say it. And we have students who will say to us in no other terms, they'll say it just this way, I know what I want to say, I've just got to go find some sources to support it. Well, that's not thinking. That's nothing but pure bias. It's nothing but pure opinionation that you have found something that you you think is worth saying, then you're going to go find things to back that up. That is why we will have people who will say, I'm supporting candidate so-and-so, and then they will go and find rationale to support candidate so-and-so, rather than looking at the information first and then coming to a decision about the candidates, why we have some of the political tensions. I don't want to suggest the cause and effect relationship, but the mindset we can see play out now on this larger national scale with respect to how people approach information. Now, I don't know to what extent we could ever discuss the the way the five-paragraph essay over the last 20, 30 years has contributed to that mindset or not. No, it would be an interesting but uh, it's a fascinating, trip down the rabbit yeah. hole, that's for sure. But nevertheless, th- we can see a parallel of the thinking or lack thereof playing out on larger scales well, would be sure. my point. You know, one, you know, one-sided, biased, argue one point at all costs – don't consider evidence beyond its ability to support a single point at all costs. 
all those kinds of things are playing out. Um, don't interrogate the quality of the don't evidence. Don't interrogate the quality of the source of the evidence, material. Exactly. Of the news material. Yeah, or if it, you know, conversely, if any evidence whatsoever, like, does complicate what you previously thought, get rid of it. Don't try to incorporate it into some more more complicated or complex worldview. Eschew it. Push it to the side. Discount it at all, you know, way, shape, or form, which is, you know, an offshoot of the... Uh, you know, the idea that some assignments will say, make sure that you address the opposition, but addressing the opposition just to shoot it down is not necessarily like no, it's not addressing productive. The it's not addressing the opposition to lend some credence or no. to complicate the matter. And, or, we, and we know this. A lot of, you know, our, our listeners would probably have experiences where, yes, we ask students to address the opposition or make sure you're considering, you know, arguments on, quote, the other side. And what you'll get is like, you know, the weakest straw person argument completely dashed off within like, you know, the matter of like a sentence or two. Right. So, I mean, the implications of the assignment are far reaching, even if we're not necessarily seeing them explicitly played out on the biggest world stages. What we do see when students make their way through our institution and elsewhere are students who have a lot of trouble understanding what they need to do with a source, Mm -hmm. right? Have a lot of trouble articulating complexity because, you know, if something complicates their question or their thesis, they don't know how to work that in other than to discount it. See a lot of one-sided arguments. And that's why, you know, in order to sort of shift this paradigm, we have to start by, you know, bashing this poor little paper to pieces, which I feel like we kind of done, we've kind of done that in a little way. Shape, I hope shape, that we've made, we, we've made, our, at least, I think we've made well, some have we, of our Have we made clear. three good points about the, oh man i don't uh, know i think we only made two points yeah, uh, made two can't be a good, we have to have a third we have to have a third because all we said we talked about the form yeah and we talked about the cognitive implications so we need one more point and no matter what that is so i would go ahead and say that five paragraph essay is bad because aliens are using it to take over the world i was going to use a counterpoint oh, and okay. i was going to say the five paragraph essay is good because five is a prime number that is, that's pretty good. And that's a reason why it's good. Yeah, all right. But let's just say that prime numbers are not as cool as, as other kinds of numbers, and that's why the five-paragraph essay is No, now you're so complicating bad. my point. Well, you can't I'm, do that. I'm just, I just want to discount the opposition oh, okay. entirely. That's I just fine. want to like wipe it off. There is no, there's no wavering off of our argument. All right, so what this podcast is now showing is how snarky we can get. And we've, we've held the snark at bay yeah. for a good number of podcasts in a lot of respects. And I think given who we are, we actually deserve a lot of credit for the low snarkier. level of snark that has occurred to this point. But look, like, you know, and I, I guess and we, we apologize yeah, for we, our snark. We, we, we have to kind of like some, now we have to do the conclusion where we talk about what we said already. But um, here's the thing. If you have any questions about this podcast, get in touch with us at info at the critical thinking initiative.org. We've touched on, I feel like we've just done the surface stuff, but in order to conclude uh, without just repeating what we've said, we are wholly invested in, in the mindset of these students that, are, that we see, uh, the mindset of your own students. We're wholly invested in giving you opportunities to show your students how to further engage your material, to think more critically, to think more deeply, and as such, 
this is not the last time you'll hear us talk about the five paragraph. We will go into the alternatives to the five paragraph very soon because we never want to talk about anything that we can't firmly place on the ground. And look, we we equally welcome your concerns. We welcome your critiques, criticisms. We certainly welcome your mean. We certainly welcome your questions. It can be on question of the week. And I'd like to end sort of just asking this. Do you really want do we want to live in a five paragraph world? Right. Is that how the world is to be conceived? If we want to conceive the world as a five paragraph world, if that's how we want people to go about their lives. Then the five paragraph form maybe deserves more argument to be made on its behalf. But I think as we lay it out this way, it's the internal combustion engine. It got us around for a while. Absolutely. But we've seen that it has also had some ramifications. It's had damage to our society as well. It's had environmental complications and so on. There are also other complications with respect to, to socializing and so on that came out of the car. But we have other alternatives now, and we will talk about those as we go forward. So let's think about what kind of intellectually rich world we want to have and do as much as we can to build students for that world from the start. Agreed. And we'll be back right after this. The Critical Thinking Initiative's handbooks are on sale at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. The teacher's version of the handbook not only walks you through everything in the student handbook, it also provides you with research synopses for the Critical Thinking Initiative's framework and the turnkey exercises you need to bring critical thinking into any class and any discipline, high school through graduate school. For wholesale orders for your students, just contact us at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. Free downloads of the Critical Thinking Initiative's infographic are also available on our site, where you can also contact us with questions or comments for Steve and Dave. Elementary and junior high versions are coming soon, so check back to our site for updates. All right, so news of the week. I picked this out, actually, before we decided to talk about the five-paragraph essay. So I'm, I'm always amazed at the kind of sort of like connections that we yeah, crop up in the relationships between our newses of the week and our topics when we're not really necessarily literally making these choices. So it's an opinion piece from NBCnews.com. I've heard of NBC. It's a piece called Can Children Save Us from the Fake News Epidemic? It's by uh, Melissa Koenig and Valerie Tiberius. And I actually like these kinds of articles because this article references a study that one of the authors actually did. It's about this study that one of the authors actually did, so I don't actually have to go out and find the study and sort of cross-reference it. Oh, you like the, the lazy aspect of the news of the week that you've chosen. I do, uh, actually. It is the end of the semester. I think that's perfectly justified. Right. So at any rate, this is about new research on the way children learn from others suggests that these capacities have early roots in childhood and in the right conditions can protect them from misinformation. Right. Well, yeah. And that's what this is about. The authors go on to say, quote, in the the age of fake news has put a new spotlight on the importance of critical thinking. However, is the answer to our brutally partisan deadlock, the promotion of such skills in the younger members of our society. And to be honest, like I would right off the bat, if they stopped there, I'd be like, there's some credibility there because, you know, the younger we can get to students, the more able they will be to navigate this kind of these kinds of deadly waters. The study that comes out of the University of Minnesota and was done by uh, one of the authors, Koenig. And then also Paul Harris, Kathleen uh, Corvo, and Vikram K. Jaswal is called Cognitive Foundations of Learning from Testimony. 
What they say here is that in the last, quote, in the last 15 years or so, research in the field of child development shows that the capacity to doubt other people's communication emerges early and is apparent even in infancy, end quote. And so they give us some examples. By 16 months of age, uh, we see that infants uh, are surprised by false information. They exhibit uh, physical cues. They stare at speakers who are telling them falsehoods or lying to them longer than... Really? Yes. In, those who are telling them uh, the truth. Uh, infants will occasionally interrupt or overtly correct false claims. And, quote, by 24 months, children are more likely to discount or fail to remember the new things that bad or inaccurate speakers say. So this exists in children from a very young age. The issue is that they are also socialized to favor certain groups over time. So they say, quote, interestingly, it might be that children's critical thinking is best encouraged by talking with others. Like adults, children learn enormous amounts from other people. And like adults, children are biased to favor certain sources. And there's a problem there, right? Um, children are also born uh, to learn their culture's implicit and explicit attitudes towards other people. And that's where the tension arises. So even though they've got this ability to sort of weed out falsehoods or quote fake news right after a while they're sort of acculturated to listen to certain sources over other sources uh the article says quote common sense and research converge to show that the way we talk about groups parentheses girls republicans muslims black people invites children to think that these groupings capture fundamental differences about people so like adults children are more likely to believe the people they know and those who talk like them and look like them hmm. end quote and that's that's kind of where the, the problem comes so the research has shown that yes children can think critically they can discern falsehoods from truthhoods at a very early age but as they grow up if i'm understanding this article correctly as they grow up they learn to understand the implicit and explicit sort of values and judgments and assumptions uh around them um they they learn to value certain sources over other sources and if those sources like adults like the people they are talking to are making claims about others right or if they are taking certain sort of biased one-sided stands against certain issues they register that and after a while they begin to see that source as valid hmm. right so in a sense, what you're saying here is that we have these natural critical thinking abilities. We sort of have these natural bullshit detectors, right? To, but yeah, the, to some extent. But the ability to detect some of those falses or detect fake news are compromised by what are perhaps, uh, I don't know, larger cultural paradigms that enculturate us to have a bias against or for certain groups or certain perspectives culturally even though intellectually we have these raw capacities. That, I think that is what they're saying. And I think that this sort of the implications here are, are interesting. And I, I'm going to go get the study because now I have to read it because I want to know, well, what kind of falsehoods were these early kids given to sort of test their ability to yeah. do that, right? If it's like, who's got the cookie, that might be different from our food stamps somehow like affecting our society's ability to become stronger, right? right? Were they much more material, stamps, right? Or, Hey, this, simplistic. you know, this massive tax restructuring is going to help everybody. So you feel as though they should have inquired with the infants about the tax breaks. I don't know what they asked, but my, my guess is the more complicated the information, at what point do 
do kids decide that it's better to just get the answer from someone else than to find out on their own? And that's something that I would really be interested in. But you're right. And this is the, the article goes on to say, quote, in fact, when children were presented with a member of their group who refused to share with another person, children disliked the person and even shared less with her as a result. However, children still chose to accept the group's the group members claims when she offered them new information. This is not unlike when adults do when information comes from their favorite group or political party, right? When news comes from the right, conservative leaning people are likely to believe it, even if it comes from someone they don't like personally, hmm. right? And that's the point, right? When news comes from liberal sources, progressives fall into the same trap. So there's this complex situation building up where even even if they don't like the person, if they're somehow valued as part of this particular group, the information becomes more valid. Here's how the article ends, though, which I feel goes nicely with this five-paragraph discussion. The authors advocate for what they call promoting good judgment. They say, quote, how might these lessons come together? If the research above is any guide, children would benefit from seeing their culturally favored sources, parents, teachers, family, clergy, political leaders admit to the limits of their knowledge, openly discuss their mistakes, profess their doubts, mm. and make their uncertainty clear, mm. right? And so it comes down to this idea of valuing complexity over arguing a point over and over and over again, regardless of the evidence. That is a really right? nice tie back to the five paragraph essay and, discussion. Yeah. And they say this, you know, they say, quote, this advice might run against a parent's first instinct, which is to protect kids and to tell them only what we know whenever we know it. But in fact, children may be much better served by conversations that combine a gift of nature, children's capacity for doubt with a human frailty are biased toward our own groups. And that's what I love about this particular piece. One, they openly advocate uncertainty and complexity, which we've openly advocated um, not only on our past podcasts, but in terms of our own framework for how we value and assess critical thinking, and how we teach students to think more critically. But two, this raises so many questions for me about, well, at what point do things become so complex that students just would rather be given the answer? Is that something that's taught to them? Is that something that happens slowly or is this is, is it just this sort of result of like over and over again just hearing the same argument in a household or seeing the same thing on TV until they just they don't want to cultivate that natural sort of gift anymore. I don't know. I mean, well, two things on that, right? One is that's really interesting is that it shows, as we were saying, that students can contend with forms outside of the five paragraph form more complex forms earlier. Yeah. This is great support for that, right? Even little kids can start to be able to deal with the untruths and, sure. and wrestle with those questions. As for the second thing about whether or not things become too complex, we know that one of the ways the brain works is that at a certain point, it kind of accepts certain knowledge as truth so it doesn't have to think about it anymore so that it can take action quickly yeah, sure. on certain matters. At a certain no, point, it we, it's, it's neurological, it's yeah, neuropsychological. Right. We have to know how to react to or act within a given situation without uh -huh. having to think our way through it consciously as much every single time or we can't function in the world. We can't once again have to try to reason through how to use a knife and a fork mm -hmm. the way we did when we learned how to start to use a knife and a fork. So I think maybe there's something to that notion about maybe it's not that they can't wrestle with the complexity. It's that that 
at a certain point, we start to accept certain paradigms or what certain groups are going to hold as truth because we can't keep wrestling with that question. Well, it's tough. And, you know, it's something, you know, I, I, I wonder now, and I think this is John Keats, but I'll have to get back to you on that. I think John Keats called it, you know, this this negative capacity. He talked about it in terms of, of, of being, you know, being able to, to make art, to continue to wonder about life and it's our ability to deal with uncertainty. Mm. Right. And yeah, I, you know, I think that there's uh, there's a point where uh, to some extent, like the brain just doesn't want that uncertainty. But that causes all sorts of problems, right? So, like, what if that two-year-old who was who still able to, you know, discern falsehoods from truthhoods entered into school and instead of that five-paragraph essay was told to write another type of essay, which the whole point is to, un, you know, look at the complexity, right? Instead of a thesis statement you're going to argue, what's your complex question or something along those lines? Right. Uh, that could change a lot of things. Well, it actually is a nice segue into my news of the week an article actually about the Air Force, and it's entitled Operationalizing Air Force Critical Thinking. Interesting. This is by Lieutenant Colonel James M. Davich and Lieutenant Colonel Robert D. Folker. Of course, we want to thank both of them for their service. Absolutely. And basically, the nutshell here is that the Air Force is becoming increasingly concerned with critical thinking because they believe it's critical to anticipating the problems that and solving the problems that Air Force personnel might encounter. And this isn't critical thinking as much in the sense of making an immediate decision if you're an Air Force pilot. These are for people working in the Air Force who are establishing policy or, or setting strategy and so on. The authors write, quote, the Air Force needs a more deliberate approach if it wants to improve critical thinking so that it can make better decisions across a range of areas, including strategic planning, budgeting, human capital management, intelligence, medicine, and acquisition, end quote. And basically, I, I don't want to get into the details of it too much, but they did some testing on Air Force personnel. Mm -hmm. And they tested people at the Air War College and Air Command and Staff College and the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies and found that in the Watson-Glazer Critical Thinking Appraisal, SAASS students scored in the 61st percentile, the ACSC and the AWC students scored in the 36th percentile, which is below average in comparison to others' master level programs. So basically, the Air Force personnel aren't doing great, mm -hmm. not necessarily up to average. It doesn't mean that they're really any more or less capable for the most sure, part. Absolutely. But, but so they're recognizing this need in their personnel to directly address critical thinking and they uh, developed a course. There's a course that some of them are taking, but they're realizing that just graduating from the course isn't actually promoting critical thinking necessarily, that there has to be some other test. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting for me about this article is that they're teaching critical thinking in a way and they're looking at critical thinking through a lens of what they're calling forecasting. Forecasting is the notion that we want to be able to predict What's going to happen down the road? Now, I would think that as a military organization, that's actually a particularly savvy way right. to start to conceptualize the idea of critical thinking. It's not just problem solving, right, where something is existing, but it's trying to be predictive of things that are going to happen down the road, which, frankly, for our purposes, I think is something we have to consider more in our approach to critical thinking. And I think our approach applies to it, but it's not something that we have isolated yeah. as something to examine as much as we could, nor is it something in a 
considerable amount of the critical thinking literature that I ever see addressed specifically is this idea of being able to be predictive of what's going to happen. You know, I kind of seem to remember that forecasting bouncing around in, in, in some cases in terms of like cognitive psychology, in terms of transfer here and there, but it isn't something that's prominent. It's definitely a compelling term, especially, you know, I mean, now more than ever sounds trite, but now more than ever, right? Being able to uh, think critically about the future and not just problems that we have right in front of our faces might be helpful. Perhaps now more than ever. <laughs> now more than ever. They write, quote, individuals with unexamined records of success should not answer complex predictive questions based solely on their intuition, end quote. And the article goes on to talk a lot about how what they're trying to do is, on the one hand, they're, they're trying to make people better at being predictive mm -hmm. overall. Some of the key factors in that are their abilities to remove personal bias and emotion from their decision making and look at things more analytically. Yeah. And they're finding that that personal element of personal bias is actually one of the stronger forces in affecting whether or not someone's able to be predictive and able to engage in successful forecasting. And forecasting as well is such an interesting measure of critical thinking because eventually down the road, you get an answer to the question yeah. that you're predicting. And they write, quote, few areas are as fraught with cognitive pitfalls as forecasting. And they don't really explain why they feel forecasting is particularly more fraught than other areas of reasoning. And I'm not necessarily sure that that, in fact, is a true statement. But I do think all of reasoning is certainly compromised by bias and cognitive pitfalls. Well, it strikes me as as something that, that speaks to, and I'm going to mangle this because it was so long ago, the uh, idea of denial versus disavowal, where, right. you know, disavowal is this ongoing major force, or the, this psychologist was saying disavowal is this major force in, in our ability to, to think critically. And one of the reasons is because maybe we, we might be aware of some of the ramifications of our actions, but we, we eschew those in order to act the you know the way we think we would like to or the sort of to follow our own bias and i can see that that sort of speaks to this idea of forecasting at least to some extent even at our best you know our brains are like well this could happen and that could happen but we're not going to think about that right now right. we're just going to go ahead with sort of my intuition and that gets us into all sorts of trouble so yeah absolutely true and when you're going out and deciding what to have for dinner the consequences are far less, I guess, than if you're a colonel in the Air United Force. United States Air Force, Making yeah. decisions that might just have a little more gravity to them. Exactly. Than some of the ones exactly. I make yeah. on a daily well, basis. Well, probably. My guess is yes, all of them. They referenced this thing called the Good Judgment Project, which was an EARPA project, which is Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. And they looked at a geopolitical forecasting tournament and research study in which, quote, thousands of people around the world predict global events. And what they're recommending is a similar kind of exercise or endeavor for people in the Air Force as a way to train critical thinking, which is kind of a neat yeah. idea, actually. I would love to participate in one of those. I, I just, don't care how right I am. I just think that would be fun because I am like working on becoming the iconic geek in the world. I would... I, yeah, I think that would make for some pretty fantastic tabletop exercises and or b board games. Forecasting the board game. Forecasting the board game. Well, that's ours now. Yes. Arrayed before you are 832 variables. Please figure out what's going to happen on this day. 
And what's interesting about this is participants would make, quote, predictive estimates based on numeric probabilities, hmm. that is 40 or 60 percent, rather than the possible or probable estimative language. So they really brought things down to, to the extent to which that there was a percentage chance that something was going to happen. Multi-year-long research studies founded by ARPA have shown impressive results, they write. And, quote, these measurements identified individuals who consistently improved and performed well over time. Dubbed super forecasters, they demonstrated the same critical thinking skills, such as bias mitigation and open-mindedness, the Air Force desires in its personnel, end quote. First of all, I want to be called someday a super forecaster. If I was ever called, got the title of super forecaster, I would get shirts, I would have business cards made up that call me a super forecaster. That's not a bad band name either. The super forecasters. I or would should it just them. be more like super, like super forecaster. It's like well, super actually, tramp. Actually, both, both I think would work. The plural came to my mind first, but uh, the, the, the singular is a pretty good band name as well. So what kind of band is super forecaster? Oh, they're a, um, I would say that they're a, some, some sort of funk jazz fusion. Punk jazz Probably fusion, like really. a driving drum bass section. Yeah, I can see right? that. Exactly. Yeah, but with biting social commentary that largely becomes true. If they're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things that don't make sense at the time, but 10 years down the road are become like fairly, uh, yeah, obvious and prescient. So that's basically their article. And I just think it's interesting on two levels to go back to it. The first is just this concept of using forecasting as a way to measure critical thinking and how obviously that is needed very clearly in certain arenas rather than solving an existing problem or what have you, which is also part of critical thinking, of sure. course. And it also speaks to this kind of this kind of article that we're starting to see folks out in the quote real world not only recognizing that they need critical thinking but trying to do something about it. So whether it's the super forecasting project at the Air Force or HR professionals reaching out to other HR professionals, warning them that you know misinformation and fake news might actually affect their employees and be aware of that and start to speak to thinking critically about certain sources right. and so on and so forth. So I always like to see that because, you know, we hear a lot about, and we see a lot of the stats that industry and organization and businesses are looking for this, but it's still not necessarily as, as common as we might like to see actual institutions like the Air Force or other like organizations doing something about it. Of course, it would be nice to know what exact training they went through in order to be better at this. Oh, and Absolutely. So that's interesting to me. And it's interesting also to see the importance that they're bringing back on bias mitigation. And I guess that ties back to our five paragraph essay. What we don't want are for people just to adopt a viewpoint and find means to support it because they're not going to be super forecasters ever. No, not at if all. If they form their opinion and then they find stuff to back that up. Yeah, or the form of the assignment itself sets them up for bias regardless of the other information right. or evidence that they might. That's right. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be interesting if essay formats were built off of being good forecasters rather than I think that would be very interesting, I, right? I want to know what that looks like. I Maybe we should think about it. But, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, or, you know, very shortly, we will come back with the anti-five-paragraph essay assignment podcast. All right. So moving on to question of the week. This one comes from Jerry in Maine. Hi, Jerry in Maine. Should I? Maybe I should read this with a thick... Mainer accent. I don't encourage you to do that, but <laughs> nobody wants to hear me do a bad New England accent, Maine accent. You do a better Maine accent than I would, but 
It's up to you. I'm going to no, say no. I'm not forecast out how that's going to play and <laughs> our viewership. It's good if I want to alienate don't go, at yeah, least don't one go, state. Exactly. Roma or great. Yeah. Don't go with your intuition on this. Dear Stephen Dave. Hey, thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, it goes on and so forth. Um, I'd love you to tackle this as a question of the week. Whenever I try to challenge students to put more critical thinking in their writing, they always get frustrated. They have a hard time doing any real analysis. Do you guys encounter this? Do you have any magic tricks for addressing it? Or am I just approaching this in a poor way? We can't speak to how you're approaching it, but it's certainly true that students get frustrated when we ask them to engage in more critical thinking. That is not something that is unique to you. No. It's something that we encounter all the time. It's their first reaction. And in fact, it's so much of a reaction from students that we actually have to plan for it. We have to tell them that it's not going to come instantly. It can come quickly. They can start to make some immediate progress with it, even in just one class. But it's not going to come instantly in that as soon as we snap our fingers and ask for it, they're going to be able to do it in academia to the extent that either we would want or they would want. The other thing that uh, I, I want to know is, and this is something that that's, speaks to how we, we work with students, do your students know what that's going to look like on the page? If your students are getting frustrated, it might be not because they don't know how to do it, but because they don't know how it looks or, you know, what you're asking for. So, you know, the first thing I would say is magic trick number one, show them what this looks like in writing. Uh, if that means, uh, you know, finding a good example and sharing that example with them, great. If that means mocking up an example and sharing that example with them, that's fine too. But students need to see, first and foremost, what are you asking for when you're asking for analysis? So find a really good example of analysis. Find a not so good example of analysis. Put those examples up in front of them. Say, here's what this is doing. Here's what that is, that's doing. That's the first thing that, you know, we always do when we talk to students about critical thinking is, well, showing them what that is. That thing about the mentor text is really important because it really does enable students to get a vision of what you really want. And we know from a lot of research that many faculty ask for critical thinking. Many faculty can't really define critical thinking for themselves. Many faculty never really go on to specifically define critical thinking for the students. So you use the term analysis. Another faculty member by critical thinking might use the term evaluation. They might use the term synthesis. And as such, when students hear this term being thrown around at them, but it means different things to different faculty members or teachers than that complicates the matter for the students. And it's one of the reasons that they become frustrated because it's very possible that what they thought they were doing as critical thinking in a class that they had a year before yours is no longer sufficing as critical thinking in your context. That's one of the reasons why we advocate for an interdisciplinary institutional conception of critical thinking. But that's a, that's sort of a different topic. You know, another thing, too, you have to preface the fact that this is going to be a frustrating process. Anytime students move away from what they're most comfortable with, and generally that's summary, or just spouting personal opinion, and you want them to, you know, analyze and come to a conclusion based on, you know, evaluation of evidence or something along those lines, let them know that they're going to be frustrated and give them the opportunity to be frustrated. If at all possible, either start with some smaller, low stakes assignments that allow for your students to practice these kinds of moves or give them multiple chances to rewrite the paper so that they can make their way toward the end result that you're looking for. If it's just a one and done deal, you're not really going to ever get the results that you want. 
And we don't want to confuse the notion that it's going to be frustrating with the fact that it's going to it, – that doesn't mean it's going to be demoralizing. No. It doesn't mean that it, they're not going to be able to work through it. But actually just informing students that this might take a little while to get some of the hang of is important. At the same time, one of the things that we would offer, and Dave kind of was pointing out this, is very specific examples and opportunities to engage in some specific intellectual moves. So if you want them to be able to, I'm just going to pick out an example out of the blue here, but if you want them to be able to look at an assumption made in a source, and for you, that's part of what is integral to critical thinking in your classroom, then having a couple of small exercises where students are actually engaging in that, where you can do it as a group and you can talk about that and you can show what it looks like from a masterwork that did it well in writing in your context or in multiple contexts, that will do a lot towards giving them something material to do in terms of critical thinking. Because so many faculty will say, we want critical thinking. And then the students will say, well, okay, what is that? What exactly is it there for that you want me to do in my work in a matter of a couple of sentences that you're going to characterize as critical thinking? And to be able to bring it down to the textual level, to the sentence level, which doesn't mean it would take only one sentence to accomplish an intellectual move, but bringing it down to the actual sentence level or paragraphical level and being able to show them very specific examples of the kind of intellectual movements that you will consider to be thinking moves will do the most to ease their frustration because they will feel as though, although maybe they can't accomplish all of the big picture hopes and dreams that you have for their critical thinking, if one thing that you're going to value is that they're going to be able to pick out an assumption, then at least they'll be able to go into their work and do this one material thing that they know you're going to value. And it's isolated and it's identifiable. And it's something that can be distinct from other intellectual moves as well. Because the overlapping nature of critical thinking for students is part of what makes it so frustrating and overwhelming. Don't, Jerry, feel like you're giving anything away or you're giving them the answers by talking to your students about what it is you're looking for. You just want to get them into a position to start to work with the material that you think is important at a greater depth. That kind of front-loading of the discussion is going to pay great dividends um, when you uh, your students finally get to the end result because they'll have seen it, you'll have talked them through it, they'll know what you're looking for, they'll know how to read a source for those kinds of things, and then they're going to be able to do it and that frustration won't be there. And even if some students aren't getting it, there'll be less frustration because they'll actually be able to talk to you about how and why they're not getting it. Or they'll be able to say something along the lines of, well, I tried to do this, I don't know if I did, but here's where I tried. And that's a lot different than a group of students who are trying to figure out what a teacher wants without knowing and what a teacher wants without having multiple chances and what a teacher wants moving from class to class where that kind of what's valued is, is, you know, is changing constantly. So, you know, make sure that you're just, you know, you're upfront and you're teaching the kind of critical thinking that you value explicitly. Put it all out there for your students. They'll pick it up. They'll be with you. And then you'll start to see the kind of work that you want uh, at the end of the day. And long story short, it's certainly not you. Frustration is utterly common as we ask students to do more critical thinking because they're just not used to doing it. And because it is initially, if until we are able to define it for them and work through it with them, it's such a mm. nebulous kind of concept. It is. So don't take it on yourself. 
But maybe there are a couple of other things you can do, including setting them up for that expectation, play the expectations game with them and bring things down to the material level, offer them a couple of opportunities to fail forward with it. And I think you'll find that that frustration can become a constructive learning tool. Students will respond to the challenge if you're clear about what you're going to challenge them about, if you're showing them how it works, if you're you know giving them opportunities to work at it, they'll respond. And they'll see the value. Yes, But thanks so much for writing in for your question. Again, anybody else who wants to add a question to the week, just contact us at info at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. We'd be happy to potentially put your question on the air. And thanks so much, everybody, because this is our – nobody's going to get this till after the holidays. So there's no point in my saying happy holidays. Everybody just be happy out there. I hope everyone had a happy holidays and we hope you continue to be happy into the new year. Thank you for listening to the Critical Thinking Initiative podcast. Got questions for Steve and Dave? Just send them to info at thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and find us at www.thecriticalthinkinginitiative.org. <laughs> <laughs>